Hi, Nicholas Vince here, and welcome to Season 4 of The Chattering Hour with our very special guest, Tom Savini. We talk about working with George Romero, Dario Argento, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez, and phoning legendary makeup artist Dick Smith for advice. We discuss the advice he gives to his students and how serving as a photographer in Vietnam forms the basis of his makeup work. We talk about that and a whole lot more. Up next on the Chattering Hour with Tom Savini. And we're back with our special guest, Tom Savini. Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Creep Show, Friday the 13th, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 are just some of Tom's makeup masterpieces. He directed the 1990 remake of the Romero classic Night of the Living Dead and has acted in films like Creep Show, Dawn of the Dead, From Dusk Till Dawn, Land of the Dead, Grindhouse, Django Unchained, and most recently he appeared on the Netflix series Lock and Key. He's also the author of several books, so let's get to it. Tom, thank you very much indeed for joining me here today. You're very welcome. So I want to dive right in and take you right back to the very beginning. Where did you grow up? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I'm, I'm still in the house I was born and raised in, this house. Wow. I've been here 74 years. Gosh, I've actually just got goosebumps thinking about that because I don't think I've met anyone who's managed to do that. I'm... Well, um, I brag that I've never lost my sense of home because I'm still here. Right. You know, my friends, they go off and they have to rent an apartment somewhere where it's closer to where they can work. Uh, and, you know, they don't they've lost their sense of home. I've never I've never lost it. You know, in fact, somebody posted on instagram you know how they say name three things or uh how okay this one was how far away are you from where you were born i said three feet (laughs) (laughs) because here's my belief what what's your very first memory oh (laughs) it sounds terrible it's not as bad as it sounds it's being left by my father in the waiting room outside the hospital in the hospital where my youngest brother was being born. So I was about three years old and that's my clear. He'd just gone to the car with my other brother to get something. I really remember that so well. Three years, three years. Yeah. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why you don't remember anything before that? See, I have a theory. I have a theory. Mm. Your body was born on your birthday. Yeah. But you were born when your consciousness, that first memory, took over your body. So for me, it was over there by the stove. I was less than a year old. And that's my very first memory when my parents were moving into this house in 1940. Between 46 and 47. So that's my first memory. So, and I really felt like I had just come from, like when you wake up from a dream, you've had an elaborate dream and you wake up, you're programmed to forget it. I believe in reincarnation and that we're programmed to forget the previous life, just like we do our dreams. Anyway, so I was born three feet away, right over there. (laughs) Wow. Wow. That's extraordinary. I also believe in reincarnation. That makes a lot of oh, really? that makes a lot of sense to me. So you bought you're still in the house. So what was your life like as a kid? What was an average day like for you as a kid? Um, well, you know, I, I, I live in a place called Little Italy, where on every street corner there were a bunch of Italian guys talking with their hands. You know, so and I was one of the kids. I was one of the you know, until I saw 
until I saw Man of a Thousand Faces, the movie. That completely changed my life. I mean, I can't wait to meet, because I, I, I hang out with Ron Chaney every now and then at conventions. He's the great-grandson of Ron Chaney Jr. So I can't wait to tell him this, you know, because I believe in reincarnation. Why did that movie, I mean, why wasn't that just a movie that I saw and I went home and I would go see other movies? That completely changed my life because I believe the monsters were real before that. Frankenstein was real. The Wolfman was real. Man of a Thousand Faces showed me that somebody creates those monsters. So I decided then and there, I'm going to be one of the guys that creates the monsters. So I'm going to tell him, why, why did that movie affect me so hard? I think I'm your, I think I'm your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather, Lon Chaney. Because, you know, why did makeup become such a big part of my life? Unless in some previous life, it was a huge deal. Okay, sure. that's. Simplistic terms. I'm going to say that to him. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a lovely idea. And as I was saying, I also believe in reincarnation. And I'm always convinced that the talents that we have, these are things we've practiced lifetime after lifetime. It's no yeah, accident yeah. that I've done acting now. I've done it in you know, or writing or whatever, you know, whatever. These are things I've done in a previous lifetime. Right, right. That's fascinating. Because, because, you know, you're a fresh entity. You know, this, this, it, this isn't a cloud that drifts by and attacks you. It, I mean, you know, we have a gazillion years of hereditary genes and mm. pheromones, whatever you want to call them, you know. So I think they do have an effect on sure. us. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So, okay. So you're a kid in Pittsburgh. You've got your. This oh, I'm sorry. You asked me what my day was like. Yeah, sorry. Okay, so, so after seeing that movie, I was all of a sudden shining shoes in the neighborhood to earn money to buy makeup or a mask or something. You know, um, my brother turned me on to a, a, a costume company. I had to take two streetcars to get there, uh, a streetcar and a bus to to buy stuff. You know, buying. The smell of that place is still very fresh. Every time I open up my makeup kit, that smell of the makeup uh, is en is enchanting, is entrancing. Because I walked into that store and I could I could smell spirit gum and crepe hair and nose putty, you know. So uh, that was a big deal going to buy the makeup. Right. And um, um, what else? Did I, I uh, there's something else I wanted to say about that. Uh, Shining shoes to buy uh, makeup. Oh, and you know, and um, and making myself up, experimenting on myself. You know, I used to go to school with half my eyebrows missing or nose putty in my hair for like a week. Then I realized I could make up my friends, so I would send them home with a cut throat or their head burned. You know, makeup wise, and their parents would be shocked. Who did that, Savini? Well, you can't play with him anymore. You know, so. Um, so that, and then that was my, you know, I, I, late at night, I wanted to scare people. So I would make myself up as a werewolf. I'm talking about like 12, 13 years old and hide in a tree. And I would wait for Billy Cronin. I knew if I jumped down and scared him, he would spread the word. There's a werewolf in the neighborhood, you know? So, so my life was like that. And then I started, um, uh, you know, I, I did the makeup on a local horror host, you know, his, I, I adjusted his toupee his his eyes were too close together. I made them. So I was doing, I was, my life was dedicated to makeup. So this is, a, and this is all within Pittsburgh. This is not going to Los Angeles or anything. This is all just local homegrown stuff. Oh yeah. In my neighborhood. Yeah. All oh, right. Right. And so what did you study at college in that case? Well, the first time I went to college, I, I majored in journalism. But uh, the Army was bugging me with physicals and stuff. So I, this is during Vietnam. Right. This is uh, 1967. So uh, three years of journalism, and I enlisted in the Army. And um, meantime, George Romero asked me to do the makeup on the original Night of the Living Dead. 
But the Army called me. Uh, I enlisted on the hold program, which means they can call you in within 140 days. Well, I was all set to work with George, and then they called me in. So I was in Vietnam when George made Night of the Living Dead. The second time I went to college, this is after Vietnam, after eight years of repertory theater, where I was in a play every night, I came back to Pittsburgh, got a full scholarship to Carnegie Mellon University for the acting directing program. I did that for three years, and I had to take a leave of absence to do Dawn of the Dead, and I haven't been back since. (laughs) (laughs) You touched briefly on, on Vietnam. And I read some of your experiences there. What What is the one thing that it really taught you? Because you're a photographer. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, end. it wasn't one thing. It was, uh, I'm the only makeup artist that has seen the real thing. So as far as cadavers go, and I had a long conversation with Quentin Tarantino about this, about actors portraying a corpse, portraying a cadaver. You know, here's a guy coughing up blood. Here's buddies giving him a cigarette, you know, and he dies and he he does that. He wants to look good for the camera. No, none of the muscles work in your body. And that includes the jaw muscles. A cadaver, the jaw is always slack because it's not working anymore. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. eyes are always open. It takes a muscle contraction to close the eyes. Now, Most makeup artists don't know this, okay? The other thing was um, the color of blood. You know, if you go to a crime scene the next day, the blood isn't red, it's dark brown. It turns into like a burnt umber, burnt sienna. Um, And my reputation is based on being anatomically correct. Vietnam was a lesson in anatomy for me. Uh, if if, If I create the fake stuff, and it, and it doesn't give me the same feeling I got when I saw the real stuff. The fake stuff isn't real enough. So my stuff is always anatomically correct because it, it creates a certain feeling in people like, oh, that must be how it is. Yeah, yeah. You know, it hits them with reality. It gives them a, 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 a reality shock when they see that. You know, okay. I mean, I get letters from kids. They've glued a sponge to their head and they poured blood over it. And they have a letterhead. Joe Blow's special makeup effect. He knows nothing about makeup effects, but he wants to be that artist. And that, you know, that's why my school exists. You know, I have a, my school has been in existence for 21 years. They come from all over the world. My students have been in, you name a movie in the past 15 years, my students have worked on it, you know. Yeah, this is, I, I was, I was going to come to that a little bit later on, but, okay. you know, while, you know, whilst, whilst you're there, Actually, let's wind back a little bit. You mentioned George was making um, Night of the Living Dead whilst yeah. you were called up. How did you get to meet George? I was a sophomore in high school. I went to an all-boys high school, Coats and Ties. There were, there were about 800 students in the high school. He came, he was looking for a kid to be in a movie that he never made. It was called Wine of the Fawn, W-H-I-N-E. Uh, and he picked me out of the high school uh, for a screen test. I remember putting on a medieval costume. And, you know, this is 1962. And he picked me out of all the guys to do a screen test for this movie. And it, the movie never got made. And years later, of course, uh, when I was majoring in journalism, I heard he was doing a vampire movie called Martin. I went down to audition to be Martin, but it was already cast. But I showed him my portfolio, and he said, oh, I can use you on this gig. And um, you know what? I, I, I chronologically took a huge leap. It was uh, before that. It was uh, – oh, wait a minute. No, I did. No, Martin was – see, I don't have a chronological memory. I really don't. I know I did stuff. I don't know when I, I don't remember when I did it. In fact, Greg Nicotero had to take all the chapters in my book and put them in order. (laughs) Texas Chainsaw, where it belonged, you know, so let me, let me try to think this through. Did I, did I do Martin? Um, Maybe, oh shit. I'm trying to remember when, I must have done Martin after. 
Yes. No, I didn't. God damn. This you, is you did it before dawn. dawn. Yeah. Pardon me. You did it before well, Martin, dawn. Yeah, Martin yeah. was before dawn, but I was back. But I'm trying to think. Was I back from Vietnam before dawn? You must. You must. I always. That. Well, okay, okay. Martin was what year was Martin? I knew you were yeah. 77 or 78. Yeah. yeah, so I had to be back. So yeah. it was while I was at Carnegie Mellon. But before that, okay, I must have been, yeah, I had to be at the, at the journalism college because right. I went to the army right from there. Yeah. So somewhere in there, <laughs> somewhere be in, in that period of time, uh, I showed George Romero my portfolio again. He remembered me. He remembered me from Wine of the Fawn, you know. And said, yeah, man, I can use you on this gig, Night of the Living Dead. But then the you know the history. The army oh. called me in and that was that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta I gotta get this straight someday. <laughs> it's always yeah, I know what you mean about memory and keeping things in order. I completely understand that. What you mentioned, Martin, and I know this is one of George was one of George's favorite films. So what were you actually doing on Martin? Well, uh, I did the makeup effects. Right. I did the stunts getting hit by a car and you know falling off things and i played uh, i played uh, his wife's uh, boyfriend at the you know uh, i don't know his name now but uh, we had many scenes at the dinner table you know and uh, uh, outside of that uh, so i played a part i did the stunts and i did the makeup effects right because you mentioned doing repertory and you mentioned that from a kid, you're absolutely fascinated by makeup. What was the original, you know, as a kid, was it, I, I want to go off and be a makeup artist. I want to be behind the scenes. Or was it, I want to do acting. Makeup is no, my I think, way into I think there were three things. Uh, uh, it, it, right off the bat, it wasn't, I want to make monsters for a living. I just wanted to be different people. I just wanted to change or copy or copy what I've seen in the movies, you know? And I remember being very frustrated, uh, you know, seeing like Dr. Dr. Lau, Dr. Uh, I forget Tony Randall's movie about yes. he played so many. Seven or faces of Dr. Yeah. Seven faces of Dr. Yeah. Or, 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 or somewhere where there was a, a bald cap, somebody wearing a bald cap. You know, I was buying bald caps from the novelty store with an, an inch thick ledge on it. You know, how how are they hiding that? I wanted to know how to do this stuff. Okay. Eventually that led to, yes, I want to be, I want to do it for the movies. But, uh, and then almost every time I did the makeup for George, I played a part. You know, I played a part. So that all of a sudden became just parts and no longer makeup effects for George. You know, I started in Night Riders and went off and did From Dusk Till Dawn, you know, with uh, George Clooney, you know, the vampire film, um, Martin, of course, you know. So, um, and I, you know, and, and, and theater here in Pittsburgh, you know, I did uh, 10 weeks of uh, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum to the, at the Pittsburgh Playhouse. But, uh, but when I got back at Repertory Theater, I was King Arthur in Camelot. I was Benjamin Franklin in 1776. I was Charlie Brown, if you can imagine this face, in your good man, Charlie Brown. I was Thoreau in the night Thoreau spent in jail. You know, I was in a play every night for seven, eight years, okay? And I was a, I was a star. I was doing leads in these plays. Hatful of Rain, I was the, the, the drug addict, you know. Um, so, but, but uh, you only have seven years after you get out of the army to take advantage of the GI Bill, you know, free college, free money. So I, then I came home and auditioned at Carnegie Mellon, showed them my portfolio, and that got me a full fellowship. So the GI Bill was money that was just coming to me, and I didn't have to pay for college with it. Right, 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 right. So what was your first official makeup job was that martin or you, what was your first proper well for the movies yeah for mm. them no 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 i i did two movies before martin when i was living in north carolina doing plays um i met a guy in a bar i don't drink i was delivering signs to the bar and this guy was sitting there looking like indiana jones leather jacket a fedora you know 
he had just finished a movie called Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things. Okay. It's a, it's a fan favorite. It's a cult classic. And I showed him my portfolio. And by the way, this is what I teach my students all the time. Uh, it's your port. There used to not be a formula for success. Hmm. But I think the formula is that you photograph everything you do. You put it in a portfolio and you put that portfolio in front of people that can help or hire you. And I use all these stories as an example of the things that changed my life because I showed somebody my portfolio. So he hired me. He had me hired on the next movie they did, which was uh, Death Dream uh, in Florida. And right after that, we went and this is Bob Clark, the guy that directed, you know, uh, Christmas Story, Porky's, you know. He yeah. was the producer, the director on, on Death Dream. And then in Canada, we did uh, Deranged, which was the true story of Ed Gein. And then uh, six years went by before I did anything, any other movie, and that was uh, Martin when I came back to Pittsburgh. Right, right. What You talked about presenting a portfolio, and we, we've touched upon uh, makeup. What's your favorite part of the makeup process? Is there a favorite part? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, there's a definition of happiness that is true for all ethnic groups, all backgrounds, and that is starting a project and finishing it, completing in you know, something, some artistic endeavor. Okay, so for me, it was all, it was you know getting it to work on set and getting the applause from the cast and crew, you know, um, and then it, when the movie would come out. I, would, I wouldn't watch the movie. I would pick somebody in the audience and watch the evolution of their heart attack, you know. So, so all these things are like the, my favorite parts of it, you know. Also, um, cre creating Fluffy, the fluffy crate creature from Creepshow. I had never done an animatronic creature before. So getting him created and working. And, and listen, it's the joy of creativity. And this is another thing I preach to my students. Here's the joy of creativity, giving life to something that never existed before until you decided to make it exist. Okay. You're, I tell my students, you're all Dr. Frankenstein. You're pulling the switch on your talent and seeing what rises from the operating table. And, and that's, that's truly is, well, the favorite thing, the joy of creativity of creating this stuff, you know, that never existed before, you know, right, right. And giving it life. Right. And that happens at my school constantly where they, you know, kids who have never sculpted before, all of a sudden they you put a blob of clay in front of them and they've created this thing that they didn't know was inside them. And then in the animatronics class, they bring it to life and you can see in their faces, you know, they're like proud parents of this hideous monster, you know. <laughs> So go back a little bit. I mean, in the during the nineteen eighties, you were doing things like Friday the Thirteenth. That was my decade. The eighties yeah. was my decade. The eighties was the splatter decade. <laughs> but go ahead. I was, well, I was going to say. I mean, I was just about to you know reel off a list of things: Friday the Thirteenth, Final Chapter, Creep Shows. You mentioned Day of the Dead, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Monkey Showings. So I've talked about your favorite part of of doing that, and that's thank you for that answer because that's beautiful. I love that creativity thing. What do you find the, the toughest? What's the bit that? I mean, Alfred Hitchcock is well known for saying he didn't actually like the process of filmmaking. He no, he shot, the he shot the movie on paper. Yeah, yeah. He shot the movie on paper, yeah. making it boredom, yes. Yeah. It, it's, so what's it, the worst part? Yeah. Well, hmm. was there a, a, the worst part? I mean, I think it's on an individual basis, on a specific job, let's say, where an actor... I need to make a fake head of the actor and he has claustrophobia, you know, that's tough. Uh, however, and that's another thing I keep bringing up things that I tell my students, but this is very true. Um, like I did like Farley Granger. I did a movie with Farley Granger, you know, Hitchcock, the rope, yeah. you know, strange yeah. on a train, that sort of thing. And um, he didn't know he was claustrophobic until we had him under it. He actually wept. You could hear him crying under it. He was so scared, so afraid. Uh, and we do a lot of prep. We, someone's holding your hand. 
your music is playing, someone is constantly talking to you, you know, to make you comfortable. But he, you know, he, you know, the, the best life cast we ever made was on E.G. Marshall. I think he was in his 80s when we made a say, yeah, go ahead, do it. You know, he just took it, and, you know, in stride, you know. So, and then, okay, I did a movie called Trauma, where Piper Laurie, who, you know, she played Carrie's mother, she dated James Dean in her youth, you know. I needed to make her head come off, roll on the floor. And as it's rolling, every time her face came up, she needed to say the word Nicholas, 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 and then come to rest against the wall. So she shows up and she's so claustrophobic. We couldn't cast her head. She was claustrophobic. So now, and again, this is what I tell my students. Limitations always, without exception, limitations make you more creative. Limitations like not enough money. Not enough time, not enough people helping you, not enough materials. It always makes you more creative. So now the mindset of being a special makeup effects artist is, and this is the first thing I tell my students on the first day of class, is what do I need to see to make me believe that what I'm seeing is really happening? And that turns into what do I need to show an audience to make them believe that what they're seeing is really happening? And if it's a movie, you're simply creating the pieces from frame to frame. Okay, so here's Piper Laurie. I can't cast her head. But but first of all, I'm thinking before I found out she was claustrophobic, how on earth am I going to make this fake head roll on the floor and articulate the word Nicholas? I mean, because if you stare at a fake head, Longer than three seconds, you know it's fake. If you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger in the mirror in Terminator, you knew that was so fake because you got to stare at it. Um, the guy in Poltergeist that's tearing his face apart in the mirror, that was Steven Spielberg's hands on a fake head, but you knew it was fake. Now, <clears throat> the exception to the rule is Kevin Yeager's heads on Sleepy Hollow. Those were magnificent. Mm -hmm. You could stare at those heads all day. They were brilliant. Okay. But normally, all right. Yeah. So, so, okay. I can't cast her head. So now the mindset clicks in. What do I need to see? So I took Piper Laurie's real head and made it look like a severed head by putting an appliance on her throat, painting her skin black, and she was dressed in black. I sat her on a bar stool that could spin. I had the effects guy take the floor, take the floor and build it upright. So I could move the floor behind her as we spun her in the chair and we turned the camera upside down. So if you're seeing an upside down, obviously a severed head, you're not going to connect a body to it. Okay. So, and, and that worked beautifully. We shot it in slow motion and, you know, and every time we spun her, she said, Nicholas, Nicholas, you know, so the director comes in Dario Argento and he was like, what, what are you doing? You know, he had no idea what we're doing. So we showed him the video test. And from that day on, he called me in Italian, the volcano of the mind. Okay. Um, but this doesn't come out of any genius. It comes out of the mindset. What do I need to see? And we're essentially doing the same thing a magician does. We're misdirecting you or we have mechanical devices you're not aware of. And, and the magician does the same thing. What do I need to see to make me believe that what I'm seeing is really happening. In fact, my books on special makeup effects are called Grand Illusions. I think of them as magic tricks. So your question was, though, what's the worst part? Well, again, that wasn't the worst thing because we figured it out, you know. But I tell, again, something else I tell my students, you sometimes have to teach a director about magic, a direct, most you know, a lot of directors just aren't magicians. You know, you have to have a shot of this. It wound up being in my contract that I would direct the scenes that my effects were in, or at least the effect itself, direct it, because the angle has to be perfect. You know, uh, driving the stake in Amplis's heart in Martin that will only work at one angle because it went through his under his armpit. You know, and it had to look like it was going to shut. Um, Kevin Bacon's death in Friday the Thirteenth. That's the same piece I used in Martin to drive the stake in the guy's neck. In Friday the 13th, an arrow had to come out of Kevin Bacon's neck. So, again, that's a magic trick. 
that involved just a mechanical device, the neck. Okay, I know I'm going off on a tangent here. Um, right. But what? Oh, okay. Creep show on Creep Show. See, every time I've done an effect in any movie, it works because you have take two, you got take three, you can keep going until it works. Okay. But nothing I planned on Stephen King worked on Creep Show. I had a hand that grew plants, couldn't get it to work. I had a tongue of the plant, couldn't get it to work. We had green lenses made for him when he turns into the plant, couldn't get him in his eyes. His reflexes were too tough, couldn't get him in. Although they made a cast of his eyes to make the lenses in New York. So th- I would have to say that was the worst thing because I wanted to impress this guy. It's Stephen King. Okay. I did eventually, of course, but uh, nothing I tried on him worked. So that was the worst part. Right. Right. Yeah. I can, I can imagine that. So moving away from doing makeup, um, you ended up by directing the remake of Night of the Living Dead. And I've heard that this was a, was tough for you. What, and I watched, I watched the film today and it's incredibly effective um, as it is, but is it, so what is it? Cause I know you had problems with the producers. What for you, what would you like to have redone? What would you have done differently? What for you is missing from your version of well, Night of the Living Dead? Um, you, you are not aware then of my new book that just came out. It's biography. Called, no, no, that was, that was one. Right. But after that, after that was, Night of the Living Dead 90, the version you've never seen. Okay. Now, I had 600 storyboards, the whole movie spelled out in storyboards. And that's what this book is. This book is the storyboards where I, I show you scenes that I didn't get to shoot. Um, and I showed you because my hand kept getting slapped. Um, I had those storyboards on the wall of my office. So if you were the costume designer, I could go through the whole movie with you. The set designer, whoever involved in the movie, I could show you the entire movie. George Romero came in and I showed him the entire movie. And he said, these are great, but you have a six week movie up here and you only have four weeks to shoot it. He knew that just by looking at the storyboards. And um, so that, it wasn't just, I mean, there was one nameless producer, and in the book, I don't name him, but I do call him um, the scumbag that he is, the liar that he was. The re- he cost me so many shots by just calling George on the phone and lying to him about what was going on. Definitely lying. And here's George. George had a deadline for creating the dark half, writing the screenplay. And he would he just say, tell Tom not to do it, cut it. And these are, these are incredible shots that if you see the book, I mean, yes, the movie is good. I hated the movie for a long time, mainly because of what I didn't get to do. But I went to a midnight screening of the movie. I went at 11 o'clock and did a Q&A before the movie. And I wasn't going to sit down and watch it, but I did. And it was the first time I saw it objectively. And yeah, the acting is fantastic. The suspense is there. It's really a good movie. But compared to the movie that was in my head, and anybody, mm. you know, any, almost any director, I just did a movie for, I have a movie opening January 22nd. It's called Black Phone. It stars Ethan Hawke. It's from Universal Pictures. It's a Blumhouse production. Uh, You know, I signed a non-disclosure. I can't say too much, but um, I designed the look. He has many looks, okay? Ethan Hawke, I designed the look. I think that's about all I'm... The preview was on YouTube. Right. But wait, what's what's the point? Oh, the the director, Scott Derrickson. We were talking about Night of the Living Dead, and I know that he directed the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still, which I watched last night. Right. And he said... He said the same thing. Those fuckers to fight. So many things he wanted to do that he couldn't do. They wouldn't let him do. You know, I'll give you a small example. Okay. To me, the best scares come from suspense. Anybody can jump up and go boo. You know, cats under a box, birds flying through a window. You know, 
And they use those and even in big budget productions, the Wolfman that just came out, the remake, which I adore. Anthony Hopkins, love that movie. But they put in these cheap chair jumper scares with, you know, birds flying. The best scares come from suspense. And and you mentioned Hitchcock, who was mm. the expert at creating suspense. Um, here's Hitchcock. Here's a room. There's a door here and there's a door here. Okay. Behind this door is the creature or the psycho or the, the tentacled monster, the bomb that's about to go off. And you have the girl walk in this door. And it's usually a girl because it's a horror movie, right? As soon as she walks in, the scare has started, okay? Because you know what's behind this door. You can't wait for her to get to that door. <clears throat> you want her to go to that door to be killed or blown up or grabbed by the monster, okay? So you head her toward the door. And if you're a good director, you slow her down. The phone rings. Ah, the whole time she's on that phone. Get to the fucking door. Get off that phone and, you know, you're, you slow it down. Now, you can't slow it down too much. A good director knows the timing because if you wait too long, the audience gives up and they don't care anymore, okay? But if you, if you, if you, if you, if you adhere to the peak of that, okay, she hangs up the phone. Oh, great. She's going to the door. Slow her down again. Oh, I broke a nail or something like that, you know. And now get to the, so you get her to the door and she opens it and there's nothing there. And you're like, and then the monster jumps out and attacks you. Get the audience to laugh or get the ah reaction, and you can scare the fuck out of them. And that's a long, a chair jumper is two or three seconds. This is like you got 30 seconds of scare here by time between the time she walks in and gets it. And that's Hitchcock, okay? And I totally believe that. So there were scenes in Night of the Living Dead that I wanted to create some suspense. George wouldn't let me put a zombie point of view in the movie. You know, a kind of black and white, decrepit point of view of the zombies. And, I, and he said, that kind of gives them life. I said, yeah, George, but they're not walking into things. They're not tripping over stuff. You know, they're not blind. They clearly can see. Now, the reason I wanted the point of view is... If you and I are talking and I show that point of view from 30 yards away, as soon as you cut back to me, the suspense has started because you know they're close by. When are they going to attack us? When are they going to grab us? So I couldn't get to do that in Night of the Living Dead. There's a scene where uh, Barbara's in the kitchen and the zombie is attacking her. Ben has been shot. He, he puts the, the gun into a zombie's mouth and starts pulling the trigger. You know, I was doing a close-up of the bullets in the cylinder clicking until they get to the hammer inside the zombie's mouth. Meanwhile, Barbara's being attacked by zombies and he wants to help her and he can't. So when the gun finally goes off, I had the effects guys build me flesh frames. Like the last one had a hole in it with a shutter. And then the ones before that were just like, like a bullet going through a brain, okay? So... The camera would go through the flesh frames to the open shutter, and then the zombie attacking Barbara would be shot, and blood would splash on her from that zombie that's in the living room with a gun in its mouth. Okay, couldn't do it, not enough time. Okay, great. Now, here's the pH de resistance for me in Night of the Living Dead, 90. When Barbara goes back to the house, she looks and she sees something in the attic. She thinks it's Ben. So she goes in the house and goes right up to the attic, not into the living room where they kill Ben coming up from the, the bay. You've seen the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ben. So she goes up to the attic and it's full of junk, you know, uh, trunks. And there's, a, there's like a, a standing uh, full length mirror. Okay. Now you, you see Barbara's reflection in the mirror and Harry peeks from behind the mirror. Harry. And he says, oh, you came back. Now you see, now it's a two shot. Barbara in the mirror and Harry peeking out from behind it. Barbara's reflection, she raises the gun. Harry ducks behind the mirror and she fires. And you see the mirror go shattering. You see Harry's point of view falling to the floor. 
he looks up and he sees Barbara's reflection in the mirror, which is completely distorted now because of the cracks. And that's when Barbara becomes one of them. They are us, we are them. And she yells downstairs, there's another one for the fire. I mean, she killed him in cold-blooded murder, just like in the version that came out in the movie. But this was my homage to Lolita. This is, this is James Mason firing through the painting and killing Peter Sellers, who you hear fall behind it. So, you know, the mirror cracks and she's one of them. And then they drag, they drag Ben and Harry to the fire outside. And they put them in the fire and their bodies are lying face to face. And the end credits are just them burning into nothingness. Okay. Couldn't do it. Not enough time. <laughs> so you got the ending that you got. But can you imagine if you had seen this stuff, you know, the movie would have been a little more spectacular. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sitting here going, oh, what I watch. I mean, because... It's really interesting you're talking about the zombie point of view because I was looking at it and there was a few moments where I thought, I'm with the zombies. I'm feeling a bit of what it is to be a zombie. This is unusual. I'm not used to seeing this. I'm feeling more here than this is just the shambling onslaught of nameless, faceless people. Right. I'm, yeah, we're them. The, 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 the zombie point of view would have been awesome. Yeah. But also, uh, also uh, in my Night of the Living Dead is the first time you're seeing zombies where we've erased the eyes. All the zombies had lenses in them because, you know, the, the eyes are the window to the soul. Mm. There's no soul. So the eyes had to go, in, in my estimation. So all the zombies were lifeless in the eyes. You know, Walking Dead, all these things today with zombies, you know, they're quite obviously people with makeup on because you, the eyes are quite normal, you know, which is one of the great things about the Wolfman when Anthony Hopkins turned into the werewolf because they kept his real eyes. He didn't have lenses in like Benicio did. Anyway, yeah. these are all, well, magic tricks. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So talking about magic tricks, and you've, you've made reference already to your school of makeup, which over 20 years now? Yeah, 21. 21. So how did that come about? Um, I was approached by many people. The Art Institute wanted me to do put my name on their course. Uh, the Joe Blasco makeup course in Florida, uh, California, wanted my name on it. And these people like never called back. You know, and then they weren't taking my calls after they asked me to do it. So here comes Jeff Embresha, the president of my school. And I treated him like shit because I thought he was another bullshit artist, you know. Uh, a lawyer had a warehouse. He wanted to start a school. Never called me. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of ignored Jeff Embresha, but he kept badgering me. He sent me a thing. He sent me a, he sent me a form, a list. He had calculated if we had 100 students, what I would make with my percentage of 10 10 to 15%. And I said, I called him, I said, Jeff, I spend more than this on cigars, you know, you know, he said, are you reading this right? Maybe I wasn't. So he, he called me into, I met him at a restaurant and I was misreading a decimal point. Okay. <laughs> so I signed on the spot when he pointed it out to me, but also uh, because it was thrilling to me when I was growing up, trying to learn makeup, you couldn't. Nobody shared their secrets. Nobody shared their secrets except Dick Smith, the greatest living makeup artist on the planet. I would call, I was a young kid calling Dick Smith, what? What do you want? I'm busy. And I would be so nervous. I couldn't talk. Next time, put, it, make, put your questions in a list and I can answer them properly. Two hours later, we're still on the phone and he's telling me how to do stuff. His blood formula, the foam latex formula. And then he would type it up and Xerox it back then, Xerox, and send it to you. He completely shared his secrets. My books have his head casting uh, 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 procedure uh, by him, word for word. Okay. He let me do that. He wrote the introduction to my second book of Grand Illusions. So he shared his secrets. And in fact, we would bring Dick Smith into my school. For five years, he came and did portfolio review, but he was brutal to the students. Why did you do that? Why would you, you know, Dick, can you just lay, ease up? Okay. Anyway, we ha he had to stop coming because 
he started to developing his dementia or Alzheimer's, almost get hit by a truck. So um, the idea of sharing information, uh, here's something else. Uh, I would do horror conventions and I would willingly say that I was arrogant about being there, you know, being at this convention. And I think the fans felt that because I got a lot of negative 10 years ago, negative uh, comments from fans about Tom Savini at a convention. Then I did From Dust Till Dawn with George Clooney. George Clooney is the nicest man I've ever met in my life. He was so inspired. He inspired me that it does not take any effort to be nice. Okay. It does not take a lot of effort to be nice. And I completely changed. I mean, after eight years of repertory theater, I suddenly realized every time a fan walks up to the table, it's a new show for them. They want to be loved. They want to be liked. They want to be looked in the eye. and You shake their hand and you smile. It's a new show for every single one of them. I'm talking 750 of them that walk up over a weekend. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that was a big inspiration to, to, uh, to make the effort to be nice. But wait, what, what's the point of that? What was I talking about? Why am I talking about it? You're talking about the school and teaching and sharing information. Sharing, sharing information, yeah. Yeah, excellent. So um, the, whole, the whole idea of sharing secrets and information, you know, um, plus the decimal point, you know, is why, to answer your question, that's how the school began. <laughs> <laughs> so what... So what do your students go through? What What's the kind of, how, how long is the course? How long do they study for? The course is 16 months. We're not kidding around. It's a degree program. Parents love the idea that it's a degree program. Uh, students come in three times a year, February, June, or October. October, we just had 54 students come in in October, uh, a week and a half ago. Uh, from all over the world, they come. Um, they spend 16 months, you know, they study anatomy, they study magic, of course, uh, they get that from me. But my, my main thrust with them is to make sure that they're putting a portfolio together, photograph. Right. And we have a photo department with a photo teacher. He's doing professional photos of everything they create. They will leave there with um, a, a portfolio that will get them work. And I tell them to put it on their flash drive. You know, uh, it's great to carry a hardbound one, but you know, uh, you know, I I have these cards. Can you see this card? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a folding card. It has everything I've ever done in it. Okay. Well, yeah. all the good stuff. All the good stuff. I am ready at any moment to give this, and I give this to fans when they recognize me. Oh, you win the prize. And I hand this to them. But I tell my students, if you see me on the beach in swim trunks, somewhere close to me are these cards. I am ready, like you should be, to show people who you are and what you can do, you know. So, <laughs> so they go through 16 months uh, with anatomy and mold making and painting and sculpting and uh, creating foam latex, applying it and painting it. Um, their training allows them to work in movies, of course, which they have done splendidly. But they can also work in a mass company, a toy company, a haunted attraction, museums, theater. You know, uh, the world is wide open for them. You know, if they if they are consistently persistent, you know. Right. Right. You've mentioned already some of the things that you tell them. Thinking about back to Dick Smith, George Romero. Um, do you have any pieces of wisdom that either George or Dick gave you that you particularly treasure that they gave you directly or you've learned from observing them? I think mostly learning from observing them. Well, Dick Smith, of course, would hand you a, a typewritten explanation of mm. everything. You know, he has a makeup course out there where if you can't travel, if it's impossible for you to travel, there's the Dick Smith correspondence course. It's, um, the least expensive and most thorough information you can get your hands on nine ways to cast a head, 15 ways to cast the body animatronic, you know, it's pretty inclusive, you know? So, uh, in fact, we used to give hand those to all my students when Dick was coming, 
he gave us his course at the reduced rate and we would hand it to every student. So it helped him a lot, you know, selling right. his course. Anyway, so uh, information from George. Well, George, George was all about freedom. You know, a good director listens to everybody. He doesn't do what everybody says, but he picks the best things, you know. So a good director listens to everyone. Uh, and he did that. And he, he would let you um, improvise as an act. 80% of what's in Dawn of the Dead are things that we came up with. Deaths, zombie kills that we and uh, I invented, okay? And he would let us do it, you know? Uh, they needed to cover they needed to cover a continuity error where Scott, one of the lead actors, loses his jacket in the scene. Well, now we got to make him lose his jacket. So George said, how do we kill this guy? So we're thinking, and I said to George, how about if we... The guy has a utility belt on a tool belt. How about if a, you know, Scott grabs a screwdriver and jams it in the zombie's ear? And George was like, okay. <laughs> so the next two hours, I spent building a retractable screwdriver with a soda straw painted silver with holes in it to pump blood. And that's how we killed the zombie. But there's so many more that were things that I invented and just go to Jordan and say, how about if we do this? And the same thing was true of Day of the Dead. He, well, he considers his favorite movie. The critics didn't like it, and the fans didn't like it all that much like they did Dawn of the Dead. But it's his favorite. I mean, that movie was going to be Indiana Jones and Zombies before they cut the budget so bad and you got what you got in Day of the Dead. But the same thing. We invented death after death in Day of the Dead, and George would approve it. So, so seeing that freedom you know i've directed and i would have the same freedom of somebody and robert rodriguez you know if you've seen from dust till dawn um when i attack have you seen dust till dawn mm, yeah. okay. when i attack fred williamson i said to robert hey can i suggest something sure sure with these hands with these extended fingers what if i came up like spiders behind him on his shoulders he said let me see it so I did it, and he let me do it eight times, okay? So that's why that's in there, because I suggested it, okay? So, um, and a good director lets you do that, all right? You would not dare to do that with Quentin Tarantino, though, okay? You have to say every word that he writes. You can't, it can't be something that you make up, you know? Or some directors will let you just say what you feel like saying, as long as the point comes across. No, you got to say, it's Shakespeare. You got to say every word, okay? <laughs> But Quentin Tarantino uh, is, he's a genius as far as I'm concerned. Um, have you seen Django Unchained? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I was the dog handler in that. I had a beard down to here. My hair was all the way down my back. I had the, the dogs, trained dogs. Um, Bullet and King were the two dogs that I had that I was in charge of. Um, the animal trainer gave us a brief course with the dogs. Well, first he would look at the dog and say, stand up, sit down, turn. The dog was like he understood English. He did everything the guy said, okay? Okay, he said, now I'm going to make the dog go crazy, and I want you to hang on to the dogs. So he did this, and the dogs dragged me 30 feet on my knees into the swamp. It was like holding back a car, okay? But eventually I was able to brace myself and, you know, dig my heels in and hold the dogs when they were supposed to be crazy and attack the, the slave guy up in the tree, okay? Now, on that day, on that day, the slave was up in the tree, good actor, Josh, can't remember his last name. Anyway, Leonardo DiCaprio pulls up in the wagon, and he says, shut these dogs up. I can't hear what I'm thinking or what I want to do, you know, or something. And the guy next to me is supposed to say, get these dogs out of here and hand me the leashes. Instead, he's screaming, fuck. And I look and the dogs have attacked him. The dogs have torn his pants off. They bit him on the ass cheek. They dragged him to the ground by his ass cheek. And the trainer had to come in and, you know, get rid of the dogs. And Quentin yells, lunch. <laughs> so we all go to lunch. Now, <laughs> after lunch, we come back and the actor is in new wardrobe. Okay. And we do the scene again. DiCaprio pulls up, says, shut these dogs up. And the guy says, Get these dogs out of here. And I reach for the dog's leashes, and now the dogs have attacked me. I've got a dog on both arms, and I'm not stopping till Quentin yells cut, okay? And he does. He yells cut. 
And the animal trainer says, um, the reason you still have your arm is because the dogs are trained to attack padding, stunt padding. They didn't feel it on my arm. I mean, it still hurt. It wasn't the teeth. It was the pressure of their, they were Belgian Malinois shepherds. It was the pressure of their jaw. Anyway, me and the actor are in the hospital that night getting tetanus shots. Okay. So now this, they bring the slave down from the tree and they attach a fake arm to him. And his real arm goes behind his back and the dogs are going to come and tear off the fake arm. Okay. Every take seven takes, you can see the guy's real arm you know, behind his back. Now, I didn't want to say anything because it's K&B doing the effects. It's Greg Nicotero. He's my protege. I didn't, I'm there as an actor. I don't want to talk about effects. But Quentin kind of strolled past me once. And I said, remember when I did that effect in Day of the Dead? And of course, he, because he's seen every movie ever made. I said, because I cut a guy's arm off. I said, we dug a hole in the ground for the guy's fake arm to go into. So all you're aware of is the guy's body and the fake arm. I, he said, okay, yeah, that's what we'll do. I said, yeah, but don't say that I said anything because I don't want to. So he goes back and a couple of minutes later, he suggests digging a hole under the actor so you won't see his, you know, his real arm. They resisted, but he insisted. And so they did it and it worked beautifully, seven or eight times. Now I'm standing there. This is like 10 minutes later and Quentin strolls by and he puts something in my hand. Now look, and it's five bucks, okay? He says, we have a tradition on my sets that if somebody from another department helps a department solve a problem, you know, a different department, it's you're the $5 hero. So you get the five bucks. So I was the $5 hero that day. But he said, never before has an expert of that department helped, you know, coming in. So, and that was a, that was a huge ego trip. But that's what it's like on a Quentin Tarantino set. Also, he'll do, I don't know, seven or eight takes. And then he'll 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 yell, okay, we're gonna do one more. Why? And the cast and crew will join in and exclaim, because we love making movies. Okay. He would make them do that. It was and, and it was true. And no phones, no phones allowed on the Quentin Tarantino set. No phones. You check it into a van with a number and a bag, you get it at the end of the day, because somebody's phone rang on Django and he left. He just left. He just because he's living in that period, you know, it took him out of the period. He, he hated it. So no phones allowed anymore on a Quentin Tarantino set. And, and the other thing that he did, and this is, again, an answer. Am I answering a question or going off on a tangent? It's a really wonderful tangent. And you are kind of okay. answering the question about, yeah, what have you learned? So, yeah. OK, well, the, the last thing was, uh, well, actually, it was the first thing I played. Uh, uh, I played a deaf and dumb a tracker with those dogs, keep the dogs. Okay. So I arrived and I had, I went to dinner with uh, the effects team and they said, what do you think about uh, Quentin changing your name? He changed my name. Cause I was, I was Trapper Bickle or something like that. He said, yeah, he changed your name to Tracker Cheney. Wow. Tracker Cheney. Wow. So the next day I go to the set, to have Quentin look at my costume and he's way up on the crane with a cowboy hat on, you know, he sees me and he brings the crane all the way down to me to look at my costume. He says, yeah, you look great. I'm glad you don't look Italian. And I said, Hey, thanks so much for changing my name to Cheney. He said, I think you'd like that. And then he went away on the crane. It was a beautiful moment. Okay. So now I decided to play. Oh, I'm sorry. I only decided to play the track with Cheney as a deaf mute after he named me Cheney. And I said that to Quentin, I said, hey, I'm gonna play him as a mute with sign language, because I'm Cheney, you know, Lon Cheney's parents were deaf mutes, okay. So all these things happened and fell into place on the joy of what it's like to be on a Quentin Tarantino set. <laughs> wow, wow. Um, we're almost at the end of our time. In fact, probably about, run about okay. five minutes over. The way I normally end these interviews is I have a thing called luggage in the crypt where I asked my guests just to have a think about what film, book, music you take with you, something that's had a profound influence uh, on your life. Take with so, me where? Again? Take with me where? Well, 
to the afterlife. Into the next, yes, into the afterlife, and obviously, therefore, into the your next reincarnation, I guess. Although you might, you'll have forgotten. We're assuming okay. that there would be an influence. Yeah, uh, music-wise, I would take Scheherazade. Movie-wise, I would take Ben Hur. Um, book-wise, God, so many. Um, one of the books that changed my life was The Power of Now, Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. Do you know that book? I don't, know. Okay. If you're sitting in a chair and you're trying to meditate, you're trying to not think of anything, yeah. what happened? A thousand thoughts come into yeah. your head. If you examine those thoughts, they are hurts from the past, at least 99%. Hurts from the past or worries about the future. Two places that you're not there. And you can't do shit about. So the power of now is living now because all you have is now. All you had 10 years ago was now. All you're going to have is now. So it's to put yourself in those two places. You're not here. You're not even in the now. So that had a huge effect on my thinking and my life and um, just enjoying, you know, life. So, so the power of now, that would be a great book. Um, what else should I be thinking of? Uh, favorite movie, food? music, favorite food. food? Yeah. Food. Okay. That's a good one. Wow. My mother's chili, which I've never had since she died in 1972. <laughs> or my dad's, or my dad's uh, pasta sauce, you know, he died in 84 and I haven't had it since. And nobody can duplicate that stuff, you know? So, no. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know those. <laughs> what about a piece of visual art, a painting or a statue? I know what it is. It's, uh, I forget who painted it. It's called Pygmalion. It's in my living room. In fact, um, I oh. hope that I can, I hope that I can unplug you. Right. You're still there? You're I'm still, still here. There? I'm still here. I hope you can see this. We're definitely getting a tour of your house, which I love. That's it's, wonderful. it's Pygmalion. As you can see, it's a sculpture. But the sculptor is hugging her as if she has come to life. Yeah. And that, I just realized at this second, it's exactly what I was saying about the joy of creativity. Giving life to something that never existed before you decided to make it exist, okay? Yeah. So that would be the work of art. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you very much for showing that. Yeah. Cool. So this is interesting. It was almost like the uh, inside the actor's studio where he has those 10 questions. Or yeah. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> so my, fi my final one is what luxury would you take with you? Something kind of not of any practical use, but just something that makes life nicer. Oh, something. Well, music makes life nicer. Music is what emotions sound like as far as I'm concerned. Um, what luxury? Well, Depends. Am I going to heaven or hell? You know, <laughs> I go well, you're to passing hell. through. You're passing through to your next life. Okay, but if I pass through hell, it's karaoke for eternity. That would be hell to me. Okay, but what luxury would I do? What luxury? Well, I mean, can I drive a great car? You know, can I drive yeah. a Lamborghini? Where I am, I don't know. Um, I love. I love driving. Um, my passion lately has been painting, though. I've done 15 paintings during the COVID. 19 thing so uh, i would miss that i would miss that a lot um what, what, what medium are you, what sort of painting watercolor oil acrylic uh both oil and uh and acrylic you know i i, I avoided acrylic because you know with oil i can blend two days later it's still yeah. you know pliable but i've learned acrylic i can do some blending with acrylic that's pretty cool uh so um but a luxury well, I don't know, do I, what are the luxuries? You know, uh, we have good food. We've got a good movie. We've got good music, you know. <laughs> cigars? Do you still smoke cigars? Uh, oh, oh, yes, that, ha that would be it. Right. That would be a good Monte Cristo cigar, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Wonderful. Or a Cuban Cohiba, yeah. <laughs> Which I used to smuggle from Toronto in the, maybe I hope whoever sees this, I would take off the back of the car seat and put the cigars in there and close it back up, you know, to get Cuban cigars back to America. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. 
not anymore. No, no not anymore. No. Oh, wait, isn't it isn't it legal now? I mean, oh, I don't know. I I don't know what your your regulations are in America. Really. There probably is. Oh, where yeah. are you? Where are you? I'm in London. Oh, you are. I uh, oh, I, I miss yeah. London so much. I miss the spaghetti house at Covent Garden. <laughs> I, I miss just, I know it. just walking through that place. Covent Garden's my favorite. Right. You know. Right. Right. Tom. Yeah. I should let you get back to your day. Thank you. This has been really good fun. Thank you. You're very welcome. Tom. My thanks again to Tom Savini. And I'm really glad he's chosen to pass on some of his amazing skills to another generation of filmmakers. Join me next time on The Chattering Hour. And in the meantime, stay safe and well. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Amanda Rome West. Composer Kevin McLeod, copyright Tea Time Productions. Music